Hello friends I'm your host Sujay and I welcome you to the 28th episode of the Meet Stargazers podcast Our guest today is a former staff member of New York City's Hayden Planetarium and instructor at the Vanderbilt Planetarium in Centerport New York He's an adjunct professor at Suffolk County Community College Selden New York where he teaches courses in stellar and planetary astronomy he is a founding member of the westport astronomical society and is also one of the coordinators of the annual astronomers conjunction held every summer in northfield massachusetts he has authored nine books in the field of amateur astronomy and for his many contributions to this field across the past 5 decades he was awarded the 2018 Walter Scott Houston Award at that year's Stella Fein Convention in Springfield Vermont today he is going to talk to us about solar eclipses for beginners without further ado please join me in welcoming Phil Harrington Phil Thanks for taking the time to speak to us and I'm excited to talk to you about solar eclipses for beginners. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Can you please share with us one fond memory from your journey in astronomy so far? I've been very fortunate to be able to uh make many journeys related to astronomy to different astronomy conventions, speaking engagements, attending conventions. and the like but since the topic is solar eclipses by far my fondest memory has to be traveling to the eclipse that took place the total solar eclipse that took place in August of 2017 it was the first eclipse to cross the US uh in uh, well better than better than two decades and so it was uh, a big deal uh certainly and i had been planning for that eclipse and making preparations where to go so forth and so on for probably 4 or 5 years maybe even more in fact in some ways i was planning for for a couple of decades uh so i was very very excited and what made it so exciting among other things was i was able to share it with my family and that was really key because in 2017 my wife and i had our daughter uh, had her son her her husband my son-in-law and then their two kids because all three all three generations we all live in the same house And so I tried to get my my grandchildren even though they were very young at the time my granddaughter who's now who's now 5 she was about a year and a half old only at the time and my my grandson was about a year older so about 2 and a half or, or so so I tried to impress upon them as best as I could at that age the excitement but my daughter to her great credit I planned all the astronomy part of it but to her great credit she realized that traveling because we were going to be driving we we're going to rent a big van <laughs> if you if anybody if you ever seen the movie uh National Lampoon's Vacation with Chevy Chase they have the family truckster this big old bulky uh station wagon well we rented a big old bulky van <laughs> to get all three generations and all our stuff in and so that was our family truckster we drove from where we live outside of New York City down to Clarksville Tennessee but my daughter to her great credit planned it out meticulously individual stops along the way every couple of hours or so because she knew the kids would be getting very restless well we just had the greatest time leading up to the eclipse then the eclipse itself which couldn't have been better in terms of weather and then the drive back home again because we stopped at all sorts of places that had i been driving on my own or just my wife and i drive we probably would have driven right past we went to a, a lovely arboretum we went to a wonderful aquarium uh, all kinds of really great things the kids loved we loved also 
that was by far a uh, trip of a lifetime, not just astronomy, but any trip. Uh, no other trip we've ever taken has ever surpassed that one. So that was just wonderful. And leading up, of course, the, the, the uh, culmination was the eclipse itself. We, we gathered at a hotel in Clarksville and uh, several friends of mine from around the, the northeastern part of the U.S., they all convened as well. So we had sort of a little mini reunion, both from a family, but also from a, a friend perspective. And uh, one fellow, Richard Sanderson, his name is from Springfield, Massachusetts. We've seen several uh, solar eclipses together. And each time it's been clear. So we're just really good luck for each other. And uh, it was just he had his daughters with him. And, and it was just a, a really great time. So that is by far my my fondest memory so far. I doubt there's another one coming along that's going to beat it. I hope it would equal it, but it certainly wouldn't beat that one. That was just a, a wonderful experience for everybody. Thanks for sharing your beautiful memory with us. What happens during a solar eclipse? As it turns out, it's, it's just dumb luck, maybe, that from where we are on the Earth, we look at the sun, we look at the moon, and the it, it works out that the sun is 400 times farther away from the earth than the moon is but at the same time it's also 400 times larger and those two coincidences simply mean that the size of the sun the apparent size how large it appears in the sky the apparent size of the sun and the apparent size of the moon in our sky as seen from earth are identical and so during a total solar eclipse of course the the moon as it orbits earth and as the earth as it orbits the sun every now and then once a month typically or once every um, 29 and a half days the sun and the moon will line up roughly, okay, approximately, as seen from here on Earth. We call that the new moon. It takes place every every month or every 29 and a half days, maybe twice a month, depending on how the days line up. Well, normally, the moon is a little bit above or a little bit below the sun in our sky at the new moon phase. But every now and then, they line up uh, when the two orbits, they're tilted slightly with respect to each other. When the two orbits happen to line up at the new moon phase, what's referred to as a node, and we have an eclipse. And so the moon passes in front of the sun, either partially in front of the sun or entirely in front of the sun. When it passes entirely in front of the sun, the two, again, almost perfectly sized, you know, identical to each other. The moon, the disk of the moon will block the, disk, the visible light surface, the disk of the, of the sun. That's when we can see all sorts of hidden features of the sun that normally are invisible on just any given sunny day. So that's what happens during a total solar eclipse, or during a solar eclipse, rather, when the moon will pass in front of either part uh, all, or all of the sun, blocking that portion as seen from here on the Earth. What are the stages of a solar eclipse? Well, they, when they talk about stages of a solar eclipse, they typically talk in terms of contacts, first contact, second contact, and so forth. So let's talk about those. First contact is when the leading edge of the moon appears for the first time to to touch, if you will, to begin to cross the, the visible disk of the sun. Okay, so that's the first contact, as it's called. And as the moon continues to orbit the Earth, and as the Earth, of course, continues to, to both rotate and revolve, the moon will appear to cross over more and more of the sun's visible, visible surface. So again, first contact will, will begin the partial phases of a solar eclipse. Now, if we're happy to line up exactly, so we're going to be witnessing a total eclipse when the moon completely blocks the sun. Okay, they're perfectly in alignment with each other. That's referred to as second contact. And that is the beginning of the total phase of the solar eclipse. That will last only seven and a half minutes maximum and probably a lot less than that. 
those minutes go very, very quickly. Then when the moon begins to leave the sun's visible disk, a point referred to as third contact, the eclipse now is on the downside. It's now starting to end. Finally, finally, when the moon completely leaves the sun's disk, we refer to that as fourth contact, and the eclipse is over. How often do solar eclipses occur? Solar eclipses are relatively rare. Um, you'll have between two and maybe as as many as four in a given year, but typically two. But every now and then, like I say, you get three or even four. It works out that approximately once every 18 months on average, you'll have a, a total solar eclipse visible from someplace on Earth's surface. Of course, given that the Earth's surface is 70% water, that means most will be taking place over, you know, over liquid as opposed to dry land. But it still works out to be about two two total solar eclipses uh, for every three years of, of time or thereabouts. The most recent eclipse, of course, was as we are recording this today on June 10th, when we had an annular eclipse. We'll talk about the different types of eclipses uh, coming up. But the, the next eclipse, next solar eclipse will occur in December. In December. Now, you're going to have to travel for that one if you want to see it, even if you want to see a partially eclipse, let alone a total eclipse, because a total eclipse, the the area of visibility for the total eclipse will be predominantly Antarctica and the adjacent ocean. Now, there are some cruise lines, so I've heard, uh, that are making plans to sail to the Weddell Sea, it's called, and get really close to the South Orkney Islands, which is down that way. I don't know of any land-based expeditions planned, which would be right on Antarctica. It would have to be. Antarctica is the only solid land that the moon's shadow will fall on that particular day. Uh, but that brings up a point about location. So while eclipses are relatively rare, the odds of the moon shadow, which is, of course, is casting down onto the Earth's surface, being cast by sunlight, the uh, moon is blocking that sunlight, so the moon shadow casts onto the Earth's surface. Uh, the odds of the moon shadow hitting a specific location on the Earth's surface is exceedingly rare. Works out to be on average, about once every 375 years. In other words, if you're waiting for a total solar eclipse to occur over your yard, you may have to wait upwards to almost four centuries, 375 years on average. And so that is exceedingly rare. For Now, me, where I live in, in New York, in New York, turns out that the next sunrise eclipse, we had a sunrise eclipse here this morning on June 10th. It was absolutely spectacular. The next sunrise eclipse that's going to occur from my location in New York will be May 1st, 2079. I will be 123 years old, <laughs> but it goes right over my backyard. <sighs> my luck. Right over my backyard, there'll be a total solar eclipse visible at sunrise when I'm 123 years old. <sighs> Wrong place at the wrong time, or at least the wrong time. Right place, wrong, wrong time, unfortunately. I'm going to have to tell my grandkids because they'll, they'll be around to see that, hopefully. Uh, but that's the plan. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's, you have to go to eclipses because eclipses won't, won't come to you. Seeing a partial eclipse, that's not all that unusual. We'll have another one here in the U.S. Uh, visible in just a couple of years, in 2023, and another one in 2024, partially eclipsed across pretty much the entire country, uh, most of the North American continent, as a matter of fact. But if I'm waiting for one to go over my backyard, I have to be willing to travel because it's probably not coming to me. Why isn't there a solar eclipse every month? That's a great question. A lot of people don't quite understand the mechanics of what's going on. So let's try, let me try to explain that. As, as we know, Earth orbits the sun, takes 
365 and about a quarter days to go once around the sun. Okay. The, the plane of the Earth's orbit is referred to as the ecliptic. And sometimes it's referred to as the plane of the solar system because it turns out most every other member of our, at least major member of our solar system, by major, I mean the other planets, eight altogether, including Earth, of course, um, as well as m many of the asteroids, uh, especially those between Mars and Jupiter and so on, orbit pretty much on the same plane along the ecliptic, as it's called. So that's the plane of our solar system. But really, it's, it's, it's a, project a projection of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Well, it turns out that the moon, of course, the moon orbits Earth, takes 27 and a half days to go once around the Earth. The moon's orbit is tilted five degrees with respect to the Earth's orbit around the sun. Okay, so therefore, the moon's orbit is not exactly parallel with the ecliptic. The moon sometimes appears a little bit above the ecliptic in our sky and sometimes a little bit below the ecliptic in our sky. It will cross the ecliptic twice in one orbit. Okay, at points that are referred to as nodes. It will cross the moon's orbit will bring the moon across the ecliptic twice every orbit, okay, a point called nodes. Well, the location of those nodes along the orbit of the moon will vary just because of the geometry involved. Every now and then, though, the nodes will cross a line perfectly with the ecliptic at the new moon phase. And that's when you can have a total solar eclipse, or when you can have a solar eclipse, I should say. Normally, the shadow that the moon casts into space at new moon passes a little bit above the Earth, a little bit below the Earth. The moon only covers one half a degree of sky, and yet the Earth's, or the moon's orbit, rather, is tilted five degrees. And so normally, the shadow that the moon casts at new moon and full moon will miss the Earth altogether, but not at a node. At a node, it will hit the Earth's surface, either partially or entirely. When at new moon... The moon is at a node point in its orbit, and it's aligned perfectly with the Earth. The moon's shadow will cast entirely onto the Earth's surface. That's when we will have a total solar eclipse. If it hits it just partially, we have a partial solar eclipse. And then two weeks after this occurs, we can have a, a lunar eclipse. Now it's going to be the Earth's shadow being cast into space that the moon is going to pass through that will lead to a lunar eclipse. So the two are related. They, they occur in pairs. You take a look at the calendar, you're going to see that. There was a total lunar eclipse two weeks ago. Okay? Not visible from where I am, but out western part of, of the United States into the Pacific, saw a beautiful total lunar eclipse. Okay? Then we have the eclipse today. Coming up in December, guess what? We're going to have a pair of eclipses once again. Okay? Solar eclipse, but also there'll be a, a lunar eclipse associated with the same event. How long do solar eclipses last? And why does a solar eclipse only last a few minutes? As luck would have it, we talked about this before, that the, the apparent size of the moon and the apparent size of the sun, as seen from here on Earth, are just about identical. Just about identical. It's a really tight fit. And if it wasn't for that tight fit, we wouldn't see the drama associated with a total solar eclipse because the moon's, the moon's disk, which of course is dark because it's in shadow at new moon phase, which is when the solar, uh, solar eclipse will occur. The, uh, the moon fits perfectly over the sun's disk. It's a really tight fit. Well, because it's a tight fit, because everything is moving, you're moving pretty quickly. The Earth is, orbit, uh, the Earth is rotating, the moon is orbiting, everything is moving uh, uh, pretty quickly. That means that the total phase of a solar eclipse, total phase, can only last a maximum of seven and a half minutes, maximum. And usually it's a lot less than that. Uh, the eclipse that I saw in August of 2017 didn't last 
much beyond about two minutes. And that was the quickest two minutes of my life. Just poof, gone. Just, just like that. Barely had a chance to catch your breath and the whole thing was over. Back in 1991, I saw a total solar eclipse down in Baja, California, uh, the Baja, California Peninsula part of, of Mexico. And there, the eclipse was going to last maximum of six minutes, 57 seconds. I remember the number. And, and that was luxurious compared to what most eclipses are. Of course, that particular eclipse, I was on a tour, as a matter of fact. Uh, that particular eclipse, we, we located our observing location in the exact wrong location. We were on the, the downwind side of a range of mountains on Baja California. Well, during a total solar eclipse, it gets a lot darker. I mean, dramatically darker. It looks like sunset. And uh, as a result, the temperature drops upwards to about 15 degrees during the total eclipse itself. Well, what happens when the temperature drops? Humidity goes up and we reach the dew point in, in Baja California, Mexico desert in July when it was 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It was, but it was very dry heat, hottest I've ever, ever experienced. Um, the dew point was hit, clouds formed, and about halfway through totality, we were clouded out. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just the wrong place at the wrong time. But again, to the question, though, uh, that's why the total phase of a solar eclipse is so short, because the fit has to be so perfect, so perfect. And so, again, maximum is seven and a half minutes. Can a solar eclipse be seen everywhere? Why can't everyone on Earth see every solar eclipse? You have to be at the right place at the right time. In real estate, they always talk about location, location, location. Location is everything when you're looking to buy a house. The exact same answer can be given when you're looking to see a solar eclipse because you have to be somewhere in the shadow of the moon. In the shadow of the moon, the moon's shadow is going to fall on the Earth's surface at the new moon phase. And you have to be somewhere in that shadow to see any portion of the solar eclipse. Okay? The closer you are to the edge of the shadow, the outer edge of the shadow, the shorter the entire eclipse. I'm talking about just total eclipse. I mean the entire eclipse itself, the shorter the partial eclipse. And if you're just even a mile outside the shadow, you're not going to see any eclipse at all. You're going to miss it entirely. Well, the closer you are to the center of the shadow, the longer the eclipse. And if you're exactly in the center, assuming it's a total solar eclipse, exactly in the, in the center, then the center of the shadow will pass over you. And that's when you'll see the total phase of the eclipse itself. But again, you have to be in the right location at the right time in order to see any portion of an eclipse. Today, uh, this morning, my eclipse was a partial eclipse because even though I was in the shadow, the problem is the sun didn't rise in time for me to see any more of the eclipse than I, than I was able to pick out this morning. But again, just have to be in the right place to to see uh, to see an eclipse. So you have to be in the moon shadow. What are the four types of solar eclipses? There are four types. You're right. There are four types of total of solar eclipses. Total eclipse. That's the one everybody wants to see. That will occur when you have the the shadow, the dark shadow, central shadow of the moon, completely obscure the visible surface of the sun, which is referred to as the photosphere. And as a result, this bright, visible surface of the sun, when it's covered by the moon, we get to see outer layers of the sun that aren't normally visible. We'll get to see an outer layer referred to as the chromosphere, which is a really intense red. Normally, we can't see because the chromosphere, even though it appears so intense during the total, a total solar eclipse, it is much more tenuous than the photosphere. And so the light from the photosphere simply blasts it out of visibility. 
We also get to see the corona, the outermost layer of the sun, often referred to as the sun's atmosphere. Once again, it's there all the time, the corona is, but you can't see it because of the intense light from the photosphere. So that's the a total eclipse, total eclipse, when you get to see the, the chromosphere and the corona. Uh, you have to be on this very narrow track, as I mentioned a second ago, you have to be in the right place, right place at the right time to see the total eclipse. Second type of solar eclipse we have is an annular eclipse. Now, the Earth orbits the sun in not quite a perfectly circular orbit, slightly elliptical. Likewise, the moon orbits the Earth in a slightly elliptical orbit as well. And as a result, the distance between Earth and sun and the distance between Earth and moon will vary. Sometimes we're closer together, sometimes we're farther, farther away from one another. For instance, the Earth is closest to the sun in early January, around January 4th. It's farthest from the sun about early, in early July, around July 4th. Likewise, the moon every now and then is closest to, once in an orbit, is closest to the Earth, referred to as perigee in, in terminology, and farthest away from the Earth at a point called apogee. Well, if it happens to work out, and again, it's just luck, luck of the draw, if it happens to work out that the moon will pass directly in front of the sun, as seen from the Earth. Okay? When the moon is close to apogee, it appears a little bit smaller in the sun uh, in the sky than our sun, and therefore, even when the the moon is perfectly centered over the sun, we'll still see a bright ring of sunlight left over. It's referred to as an annulus, and as a result, it's referred to as an annular, not annual annular eclipse. You have a ring, and sometimes referred to as a ring of fire. Now, that was the eclipse today, June 10th. That was the eclipse that, that was seen not from the U.S. because, again, it wasn't sunrise yet. But if you're in the right place at the right time, you would have seen this bright ring of sunlight left over, this ring of fire left over, simply because the moon wasn't large enough, this, given this particular circumstance, to completely cover the sun's visible, completely cover the sun's uh, photosphere. Now, we have a hybrid eclipse. Hybrid eclipse is really cool, sometimes referred to as an annular total eclipse, because it literally is right on the hairy edge of the moon, completely blocking the sun, right on the hairy edge of it. They're identical in size. I mean, perfectly. Normally, if the moon's a little bit larger than the, the sun in the sky, that's when we'll see the total eclipse. When it's a little bit smaller, we'll see an annular eclipse. Here, it's identical. The two are identical in size. And so when the moon is centrally over the sun, we still see a bright ring of sunlight around it, but it's a broken chain. In other words, it's not a solid ring, but it's a broken chain. Because, of course, the edge or the limit of the moon has mountains and valleys and irregularities and so forth. And so the mountains, when it's perfectly centered, the mountains will block the, the sunlight, but the valleys will pass it. I saw a hybrid eclipse back in May of 1984, wow. and that was amazing. It was because I, I mean, I have some wonderful photographs uh, showing what looked like just a, a broken ring of almost like diamonds or jewels. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as as a uh, well, some call them uh, Bailey's beads after Francis Bailey, who, who was first to really note the phenomenon. Uh, it does look like a necklace. And it was really quite amazing. Now, to look at a, a hybrid eclipse, which is extremely rare. A hybrid eclipse, you need proper eye protection just as you do to look at an annular eclipse and just look at the sun on any given sunny day for that matter. Uh, you don't need that for a solar for a total solar eclipse, but in any case, we'll talk about that in a little while. Fourth type of eclipse though is a partial eclipse, 
where a partial eclipse will occur when the sun and the moon are not exactly in a line with each other as seen from the earth. And so the moon will only partially cover the sun. Or if it's a total solar eclipse or an annular eclipse or a hybrid eclipse, and you're not exactly at the center line of the event itself, you will also see a partial eclipse. Even when the, the moon is, is uh, covering 90, 95% of the sun's disk, if you don't know an eclipse is going on, you may not even realize it because the amount of sunlight, even when it's 90 to 90% covered, the amount of sunlight, just a casual eye, you may not even notice it diminishing. Uh, but uh, the, the first solar eclipse I saw way back in 1970, the sun was 97% covered by the moon at maximum. Okay, 97%. We did notice that. Okay, that, But again, we were looking for it. Temperature dropped about 10 degrees and, and so on. But I've seen other eclipses where you have maybe 30 or 40 or even 50% of the sun covered by the moon. You wouldn't even know it. So that's a, But that's a partial eclipse. What is the difference between a total solar eclipse and a partial solar eclipse? Like I mentioned a moment ago, a lot of it has to do with location. You have to be in the right place at the, at the right time. Uh, because, again, since the moon and the sun are so closely matched in size, the central shadow of the, that is cast by the moon, referred to as the, the umbra, the central shadow literally comes down to a focus here on the Earth. And if you are, at that, are not at that focus point, that focus point could be, I don't know, maybe 40 miles wide or you know, 60 or so kilometers wide, roughly at most. Usually it's narrower than that, though, unless you're there. And of course, everything is moving. So as the Earth rotates, it's not a point you have to be looking at. It has to be along a thin line, uh, result of the Earth's rotation, as well as the moon's orbit around, around the Earth. Um, if you have to be somewhere along that line. Uh, to see the total phase of the eclipse. If you're not exactly somewhere on that so-called center line, you're going to see a partial eclipse. So that that really has to do with with where you are. You want to be at the right place at the right time. Somewhere along that center line is where you want to be. What is the difference between an annular and a total solar eclipse? The difference between an annular eclipse and a solar eclipse has a lot to do with location. I mentioned earlier, a partial eclipse versus a total eclipse has to do with your location. Here, though, we're talking about the location of the moon with respect to the sun in terms of distance away from us here on the Earth. The Earth is closest to the sun early January, around the 4th of January, at a point in its orbit referred to as perihelion. perihelion. And likewise, twice in its orbit, the moon passes through a far point referred to as apogee and a near point named perigee. Well, if it works out that the Earth is closest to the sun at the same time that the moon is farthest from the earth, the moon will appear smaller, be substantially smaller than the sun or our sky. That's when you'll have an annular eclipse. Even though you're exactly in alignment, you individually on the earth's surface, exactly in alignment with the earth and uh, with the moon, and the sun, okay, the moon shadow won't make it all the way down. The central shadow won't make it all the way down to the Earth's surface. Instead, it stops some distance above the Earth's surface because the moon simply isn't big enough. We're too far away, in other words. And so at that central point of maximum eclipse, you'll still see a bright ring of sunlight left over. That's the difference. Whereas with a total eclipse, the moon is large enough to completely obscure the visible surface of the sun, the photosphere, as it's called. And that's when we'll see the chromosphere the outer, an outer layer of the sun, and the corona blossom, almost like petals of a flower, around the, the eclipsed photosphere. Again, the moon is blocking it, so we can't, we can't see it. 
So that's really the difference. It has to do with how far the moon is away from us and how far we are, the Earth is, away from the sun. And if it works out that the moon appears a little bit too small compared to the sun's apparent size, we'll have this bright ring of sunlight left over, an annulus, sometimes again referred to as the ring of fire, which can be really dramatic. But it, it pales compared to a total eclipse, quite honestly, but still could be a very, very dramatic effect. How rare is an annular solar eclipse? I, I looked this up not that long ago because I was kind of curious with leading up to the, to the eclipse we just had. I wanted to see, okay, between now and the end of the century, what are the numbers worldwide? What are the numbers? And it turns out that between now and the year 2100, we're going to have 55 annular eclipses. That included the June 10th, 2021 eclipse that we just experienced. Okay, so we have 54 more to go. It turns out between now and the end of the century, we also have 54 total solar eclipses to come. So the numbers are identical. Numbers are identical. I was kind of surprised about that, but, but that's how it works out. We have 58 purely partial eclipses. In other words, no matter where you are on the Earth's surface, the moon shadow will never fully hit the Earth. And therefore, no matter where you are, you'll see a partial eclipse. If you're going to see anything at all, you'll see a partial eclipse. We have 58 of those. The next will occur in... Um, October of 2023, as a matter of fact. Then hybrid eclipses, those are rare. Okay, those are rare. Between now and the end of the century, only five will occur. The next will be on um, April 20th, 2023. You'll have to travel for that one, unless you're in Western Australia, because that's the only place where it will be visible. Also in the adjacent ocean, it'll be visible as well. What should you not do during a solar eclipse? Well, what you should not do during a solar eclipse is look at the eclipse. Let me explain that statement, okay? By, by that, I mean look at it directly. The sun is the only object in the universe that could do you physical harm on a daily basis. Right? Now, you know that if you lay out in the sun for any length of time, half hour, 45 minutes, you're going to turn as red as a lobster because of sunburn, okay? Energy from the sun, not the bright light that we see, but rather it's what we don't see the infrared, the ultraviolet radiation, and other forms of radiation that the sun is giving off all the time. Our eyes can't detect it, but guess what? That radiation impacts your skin and will eventually cause your skin to redden and burn and so on. Well, that exact same radiation will also enter your eye and burn your retina, not in a half hour, but in seconds. In seconds, your, your eye, your retina will be burned perhaps permanently because of this radiation invisible but still really damaging radiation from the sun. So therefore, you don't look at a solar eclipse directly during the partial phases, okay, during the partial phases. Instead, you need some sort of a, a safe solar filter. Now, back in 2017, when we had this eclipse across the U.S., it was immensely popular here, immensely popular, uh, not just within the U.S. and Canada and North America, but from Europe and Asia and people travel from all over to see this eclipse. Well, as luck would have it, of course, that meant that supplies of solar filters became quite rare. And people were trying to buy these safe glasses okay, that you could actually put on, not sunglasses to be exact, but they were safe solar viewing glass, typically made out of cardboard. Okay? And they had this, this specialized film that filtered out all of the dangerous wavelengths of light while diminishing the intensity of the bright light visible light that we could see down to a level that we could view it comfortably okay, without doing any eye damage. Well, I heard some some really horror stories that they were selling uh, uh, some counterfeit ones, which ultimately did cause 
uh, eye damage and so forth. So you want to make sure that before you look at a solar eclipse, you're using the right eye protection. Okay? And you want to get it from a reputable supplier. Okay, That's really key, a reputable supplier. Um, you don't want to use the old wives' tale you have that you use smoked glass, or you would use welder glass, or you would back in the day when we had film, you would use two overexposed black and white negatives lined up with each other. They're not going to filter the dangerous rays of the sun to the extent that you have to, and you will cause eye damage. So you must have a correct sun filter on over your eyes, or over a telescope, or over binoculars if you want to view it safely. Otherwise, please don't look at the sun because it's going to cause you know you grave trouble uh, going forward. Now, a lot of people are under the impression, incorrectly so, that it's only unsafe to look at the sun during an eclipse. That's not true. That's not true. The exact same damage would take place to your eye on any given sunny day, any given day. It's not that all of a sudden light from sun takes on this mystical voodoo quality that's going to do you harm during a solar eclipse that isn't going to harm you on, on any given day. That's not true. It's just that on any given sunny day, people don't really care about looking at the sun because there's nothing really to look at. It's just, oh, yeah, there it is up in the sky. But during an eclipse, all of a sudden, oh, look, at, there's something magic going on. I have to see it. And you're going to damage your eyesight. So, And I heard horror stories of that happening in 2017. So please don't do that. The only time you can look at the sun safely during an eclipse is during the exact total phase. When the moon completely blocks the photosphere, the visible surface of the sun, that's where all that harmful radiation is coming from, the visible surface of the sun. During those few fleeting minutes of totality, yes, you could take off the filters. In fact, you must because it'd be too dim. You wouldn't see it otherwise. But as soon as third contact takes place, in other words, totality ends, and the visible surface of the sun begins to reappear, filters go on instantly. Okay, so that's really key. Another way of viewing the sun safely during a partial eclipse or just on any given sunny day is to make what's called a pinhole projector. A couple of pieces of cardboard. Some people use a cardboard box. That works as well. But on one piece of cardboard, you simply punch a hole. You know, a small hole. A couple of, I don't know, centimeter, not even that big in size. And then you use that to project an image of the sun onto the second surface. A box is great because the, the, the size of the box will serve to darken the projection surface, the inside opposite surface of the box. Maybe put a piece of white paper on there also to serve as a projection screen of some sort. And you can view the sun perfectly safely using a very, very simple, again, it's referred to as a pinhole projector, very, very simple way of looking at the, uh, the progress of an eclipse. How can I safely view a solar eclipse? Well, again, you want to use the correct filter okay, or use a technique such as a pinhole projector. You can do that. You want to make sure that you're not looking at the sun directly without proper filtration. That's really key. Now, I remember when I got my first telescope, and it goes back, and I embarrassed myself saying how long ago it was, but when I got my first telescope, and it was pretty common back then with cheap beginner telescopes, you would get a sun filter. And the sun filter screwed onto the eyepiece, what you, you view through the telescope, it screwed onto the eyepiece itself. Well, I had one of those, and so I put it on. And all of a sudden, one day, I was looking at the sun, and I started to, with this filter in place on my, on my telescope, and I started to see flashes of light. I was like, huh, I wonder what that is. First, I thought, I was a kid, what did I know? I thought I was seeing a solar flare. <laughs> well, it wasn't a solar flare. It was a flare. It was the sun, but it was sunlight because the intensity of the sun's light had focused 
on that filter, which is again on the eyepiece, which is where light comes to a focus anyway in a telescope, and it cracked the glass, a little hairline crack. I'm really lucky. If it had failed completely, I could very well have lost sight in one eye just because of that. So you never ever use a solar filter that screws onto an eyepiece. They've gotten rid of those long, long time ago because they were deemed unsafe by everybody. But you never know. One could be floating around. You never want to use that. If you're going to use a sun filter over a telescope or over a pair of binoculars, make sure it fits over the front of the telescope. That way, the sun's light and all that harmful radiation and the heat is filtered before it enters the optical system. And therefore, it won't damage the optics. And more importantly, it won't damage your optics, your eyes. Okay. So that's really important. Uh, alternatively, you can project the image of the sun. Uh, I mentioned a pinhole projector before. You can also use binoculars or a telescope to project an image of uh, the sun onto some sort of a projection screen. Could be a piece of paper, cardboard, poster board, whatever. That also works really well, especially if you want to share the excitement of an eclipse with other people at the same time. Um, for the eclipse in 2017, I came up with a, well, I didn't come up with it. I, I made it, but I didn't invent it. Uh, I've read about it online. A little projector that allowed my grandkids to, to didn't have to squint through a telescope, which they couldn't do back then anyway, but it was projected onto a little screen and they could actually watch the progress of the eclipse while I was trying to photograph it with all the equipment I had. So that was a great way to share their, that experience with them. And I, I really would recommend that to parents and teachers and anybody, if you have children, to come up with something where you can all share the excitement of the eclipse together. And coming up with this projection device is a wonderful way to do that. Where can our listeners find you online? Well, uh, I maintain a website, philharrington.net, uh, for the books I've written, as well as a list of all the articles I've written over the course of the, the decades that I've been doing this. So philharrington.net will get you to, uh, to that list of books as a way to contact me if you want uh, through my website as well. Up the, the homepage, the top left-hand corner says contact, contact me. And so you can do that. You can also find me in Astronomy Magazine every month. Astronomy Magazine has the largest circulation of any English language uh, magazine on the topic in the, in the world. So that's kind of cool. Uh, I do a, uh, a monthly column in there called Binocular Universe. Do some other articles in there every now and then as well. Um, also, you can find me online at cloudynights.com. Cloudynights.com is, is essentially the, the center of the amateur astronomy universe, at least the English amateur astronomy universe online. So cloudynights.com, I do a monthly column there, uh, online column uh, there as well. And uh, I'd encourage you to you contact me through that as well, certainly. So I'd be happy to hear from uh, listeners who have any questions about eclipses or whatever. I'd love to hear experiences that people have had viewing eclipses, uh, what war stories have been, you know, what's gone right, what's gone wrong. And it always uh, makes for, for great conversation. Thank you, Phil, for this fascinating discussion on solar eclipses for beginners. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Phil has shared with us precious knowledge on solar eclipses and recommendations for safely observing them. You can find useful links and resources in the show notes. Please check out my online store dedicated to binocular astronomy at shop.meetstargazers.com.